Welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. Um, I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau, founder of Vizaptic, a company based in Melbourne, specializing in telepresence and educational robots. It gives me great pleasure today to introduce you to Alan Jones. Alan is a startup founder coach and tech startup angel investor based in Sydney. He has advised hundreds of Australian startups and invested in many of the best. Alan, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me, Nikki. It's great to see you again. Yes, we we go way back and we'll touch on that in a little bit. But uh, Alan, you've been described as a specialist generalist, which is a Mm. rare combination. Tell us about Mm. your journey from a tech journalist to advising startups. I think um, there are, you know, stages in the growth of a business where it's important to have um, specialists involved so that you can get the best possible talent and the best possible experience to perform critical functions in a, in a business. But in the early stage of a business, if you try and staff a company with, with deep specialists in, in, in narrow vertical focused areas, then that gets it pretty expensive, pretty fast, right? So you're paying top dollar for the best possible people in the field. And each of those people is only capable of looking at one little narrow slice of the business. So earlier in the business, I think strategically, it's it's smarter to have a bunch of people who are, you know, less surgical scalpel and more Swiss army knife. And, and, and I think I'm one of those Swiss army knives. Um, I'm certainly not the best in the industry at any one individual thing. Uh, but, but, I think, yeah, my, my ability to adapt and my ability to do um, a near enough um, is good enough job for a lot of the organizations I've worked for over the years um, that has kind of um, stand me in, in, in good stead. Um, I, I started out my career as a, as a reporter back in the days when there was, there was no internet. So it was, it was before the internet and journalism was printed on paper and um Basically, if, if you were a business owner and you were trying to decide, you know, what computers to get your staff or what brand of printer to buy or, or how to network your office up, you had to you had to subscribe to a computer magazine to make sure that you didn't miss out on the feature article that that told you everything that you needed to know. Right? Um, really, the only way you knew how to make these decisions was to read computer magazines and to attend computer expos, which happened typically like once a year in Australia, and so. Anybody who edited a computer magazine was in a pretty influential position. And yet, you know, then as in today, um, uh, uh, media companies put relatively young, relatively inexperienced people in, in, in responsible positions because they, they work really hard for, for, really, for a small amount of money. So I was put in, in one of those positions. I ended up as the editor of a computer magazine. And technology companies used to um, send me, you know, business class all the way to to um, San Francisco and, and and LA and and Boston to interview, um, uh, you know, business leaders. Um, I interviewed Bill Gates. I interviewed Larry Ellison. Um, I got to spend a little bit of time with Steve Jobs. I uh, attended, you know, all of their product launches, and and uh, and and through that experience, I started to feel like. You know, reporting on these companies, reporting on on the advances that we're making in technology, I found their culture closer to my heart than than the media companies that I was working for, and I started to think about how to make a switch. But I wasn't a, a hardware engineer or a software engineer. You know, I wasn't a graphic designer or, or or a skilled marketer at that time. I was just a reporter, and I wasn't really sure how I could do that. But then the internet came along, and basically in the early days of the internet. Um, startups on the internet were essentially just online media businesses. They were like a magazine or a newspaper, but they were on web pages instead of on paper. And that allowed me to take my skills, to transfer enough of my skills from from print layout and production to website layout and production. So I got involved sometimes just on a volunteer basis, but other times just as a, as a contractor or as a freelancer on some of the early attempts at, at doing online media in Australia. And uh, that that led me into it. So in those days, it, it was it was so unlike the technology that we have today that, that what we call a um, a product manager in a, in a tech startup business we used to call producers because it, it felt more like producing something for a television or or, or Hollywood. Um, and uh, so I, I became a producer initially at at Microsoft in Australia, working on some of the things that became part of Nine MSN, and uh, and and then I I took a, a huge leap of faith and joined a tiny little 
technology company um, based in, in Silicon Valley that nobody much in Australia had ever heard of. And, and that turned out to be Yahoo, um, which was an extraordinary experience. So the company was so new when I first joined that um, Jerry Yang, the, um, the, the co-CEO of Yahoo at the time, flew out to Australia to speak at a conference. And it was his first time across the international dateline. And he didn't realize that he would lose a day. Um, and so he arrived in, in Australia a, a day after he was meant to be keynoting at this conference. <laughs> um, I was very, you know, obviously sheepish and embarrassed about that. Um, the conference organizers shuffled everything around to, uh, to make room for him on a, a day later. Um, so that was how simple things were back then. You know, when I first went to the US for the first time to go to headquarters, you know, to meet some of the people that I'd be reporting to in my new role. Um, I, I had to, uh, you know, I rented a car. I had to drive from San Francisco about an hour and a half south. And, uh, and I had to print out all of, the, all of the maps. So there was such a thing as an online map back then. Um, but there's no way to take it around on, on a device when you're actually driving. So I had about 20 pages that I'd printed out A4 and I'm fl flipping through the pages as I went down the freeway <laughs> trying to find the right exit. And, and I was 45 minutes late for my first meeting on my first day at Yahoo. What a way to make an impression. <laughs> fortunately, fortunately, everybody else was trying to figure it out then too, you know, yeah. so, so Yahoo and every other technology company, all of the true first generation web 1.0 um, startups were just trying to figure it out as they w went along. A lot of us were, were arts um, majors, communications majors, business majors. We, we had very little, um, uh, you know, the, we had very little experience in the actual building of technology and and uh, and the people who were actually building the the software that, that yahoo ran on were often inventing things for the first time you know the things we take today for granted like content management systems and and servers in the cloud um, a lot of these things if they existed at all had to be hand built um, and and so that meant you know you had to be, be able to not just build something the first time but then support it and and extend upon it and i remember you know, there was a time when, when Yahoo's headquarters moved from one campus to another uh, to, to accommodate more staff. And we actually had to leave um, a bunch of servers running in the old building um, and do a deal with the new tenants of the building because <laughs> we weren't quite sure what ran on those servers. Um, and yeah. we needed more time to figure out what was running on there. And we couldn't turn those things off in case it brought all of Yahoo down. Um, so they were crazy times, but really, really good times as well, obviously. I mean, what an enormous privilege to, you know, you and I are the same generation age-wise to, um, I think we mentioned the phone. You remember the initial internet when you went, <laughs> that connection yes. noise and you tell yeah. youngsters they've got no idea what that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I used to get in trouble with hotels on business trips, right? Because I used to have to carry a little Ziploc bag with me that had all of my tools for disassembling, uh, you know, because I'd stay in some cheap motel um, in the Bay Area and, and the phone would always be hardwired into the wall so that people didn't steal the phone. Um, and I needed that phone and I couldn't connect to it unless I got to the actual wires, you know. So I would have to get a screwdriver and take the, the plate off the wall and then strip the, strip the ends off the wires and then manually wire in my own modem before I could get connected. Um, so I'd leave this mess behind me every time I left a, a hotel and get in big trouble. So you're on the blacklist. Alan Jones, a nice one. No, you can't stay here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember the um, so many weird things about Silicon Valley in those days. You know, the first time driving down the freeway and seeing probably three and five of the billboards on the highway were for were for tech startups and 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 that you know australia in those days you know and nobody knew what a tech startup was and and to and to you know it was like um um going to mecca for the first time as as a muslim or something you know perhaps it was just it was it suddenly became aware of, of how big my industry was, even though it was so tiny in Australia. Um, but other other weird things caught me all of the time. And of course, it wasn't just me, you know, so I was representing the Australian and New Zealand part of the of the company when I was in the US. But by that time, Yahoo also had people building a Yahoo business in Japan and France, in, in Brazil, in uh, in Singapore, in India, you know, and we would all come together to meet for these conferences in, 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 at headquarters and uh and, and all of us, you know, would bring our own sort of cultural and historical filter to what we were seeing when we were in California and how weird California seemed to was. And yet these were our people, like this was our home, this was our tribe. Um, so that was, there were some really fun experiences. I remember a bunch of um, European um, colleagues of mine 
um, uh, rented um, the largest cars that they could find from from Hertz or, or wherever we were allowed to rent our cars from, and so they were driving around in this in this enormous Chevy suburban vans, you know, the things that sort of accompany the president on, on motorcades, and uh, and they would refuse to give you a lift in it, you know, because for them, you know, as, as a Frenchman, you know, these these cars were obscenely large, and so they were making a point of it. No, 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 no you cannot you cannot come in my car. You know, there's only enough room in here for me. No, no, no. <laughs> we would go to shooting ranges and we would eat southern fried chicken and and uh you know celebrate um all the craziness which is america and, and still is today america yeah um but ultimately yahoo became a big company um like all successful companies do and and the opportunity to be a swiss army knife um narrowed and narrowed and narrowed for me um and and so eventually when when, when yahoo was just a big company just like any other um it was time for me to move on so after a period of of, of mourning um you know because they really were my family family that was my home um i had to figure out um what to do next um and i had just enough money um and just enough self-delusion to um start pursuing my own textile founder goals um sometimes with my own ideas sometimes as a co-founder with with other people that are new in the startup industry in australia at that time um so i spent about the next decade um uh trying and failing more often than not um and then when i was hitting my my early 40s i started to realize you know if i'm only successful with one of my ideas um say every one in five attempts and it takes me three to five years to see every attempt through to its natural conclusion but i'm i'm going to be 65 70 years old and and still thinking about the next startup that i do maybe i don't really want to do that you know because mm -hmm. the founder life is hard um and so then i started to to look at what other roles I could play in the startup ecosystem. And, and I realized that if I could learn how to be an angel investor, then I actually I could spread my remaining capital across a number of different startup ideas at once and, and perhaps in some cases participate in those companies in some sort of role. But mainly, you know, I wouldn't just be doing one startup at a time. I'd, I'd, I'd have my, you know, many different eggs and many different baskets. Um, so I had to learn how to do that. And that was scary for me. Um, but uh, so far, it's, it's, it's going okay. Um, the thing I can't get um, away from, though, is, 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 is my need to, to contribute. So I do really enjoy um, uh, the opportunity to invest in companies when, when there's something that I can contribute to, to the direction of the business or, or, or a set of skills that perhaps the business doesn't yet have. You know, um, To feel a little bit of that, of that small startup team feeling, again, is, is, is a lot of what drives me. So that when a company that I've invested in um, grows to the point at which I don't really have much of a contribution to make anymore. Um, then, then I'm, I'm, I'm open to, to being bought out by, by later stage investors. And, and, and then I'll, you know, wish those companies um, the, the best of luck and, and on they go to their bright future. Oh, what a, what a career, Alan. Um, our paths crossed about three and a half years ago when Exaptic was accepted into the Collider program at uh, QUT and you were the uh, entrepreneur in residence there. Uh, I remember fondly a day that uh, you called me and we sat down for an interview and I think you asked me one thing. I think you said, how are you, Nikki? And I promptly burst into tears. <laughs> you said, yes. You sat there as the wise sage that you are and you didn't say a word until I finished crying. I don't actually know why I was crying that day. I probably do, but uh, we won't go into that. Um, I think you were under a lot of stress. You know, you were under a lot of stress as a, as a founder. You were feeling that imposter syndrome, um, but you also had an incredible um, pride and determination you weren't going to let this beat you and 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 you know so that creates emotional distress yeah you, know, you were attempting to do something really really hard and you were scared that you might not be able to do it but you were damned if you're going to let it beat you and uh, <laughs> so it's it's natural to be upset. I, I can laugh about it now because i was the oldest uh participant in the program and mm -hmm. scott my dear friend was the youngest and and we of course bonded instantly and would make a lot of noise when we were in the office together <laughs> but um you know i think you know we were both the you and i were both away from our families because you live in mm -hmm. sydney and i live in melbourne um what were the particular lessons that you learned from that cohort of people that you were dealing with personally and professionally? Because I think that was the first time that you were actually away from your family uh, for, for such a long time. 
Yeah, yeah, it was um, a, a valuable opportunity for me because a lot of the work that I do with accelerator programs, um, like like that program, um, I'm I'm mixing that work in um, alongside you know many other um, demands on my time, and and the downside of, of working with the Collider program was that I was away from my family all week, but the upside of, of of that was obviously you know I got to really focus a lot more on on the founders in the program and and what was going on for them you know in their journey. Now some people um, are wholly self-contained and and don't really seek to build a relationship with a, with a coach or a mentor. And, uh, and you've got to respect that and you've got to give those people the space they need to, to grow and develop on their, on their own time in their own terms. Um, but, but others are there um, and, uh, and are looking for help and, and don't know where to turn. And, and it's a, an incredible privilege to be able to, to be able to invest as much time as, as you think they may need from you. Um, so I, I think um, at that time, I was starting to realize that um, I could become a better investor, a more successful investor, um, and also a much, much better mentor, much, much better coach um, if, if I was actually doing it professionally. You know? So for me, you know, QT were, were, were paying me um, a contract fee to, to coach founders in their program, and that allowed me to, to set aside a bunch of other interests that I had that, that would earn me um, part of my, my diversified income every month. Um, so that opportunity to, to, to focus meant... I. I feel still today that I was able to go much deeper with many of those teams than I can ordinarily in, in, in another program. So ever since then, I've, I've tried to, to look for that, for opportunities to, to um, you know, professionally be paid to coach founders in programs. Fortunately, that's, that's what I get to do um, with, with the Remarkable Accelerator program, um, with Murudi when Murudi was a thing. Um, and... Uh, a great thing about about a commercial engagement is that you know both parties um, equally value um, what's going in and what's coming out. You know, a challenge with with many voluntary um, mentoring relationships is is you know maybe sometimes unconsciously or, or perhaps even consciously the mentor might feel like well you know I'm doing my best I'm helping as best as I can but like you know I have a I have a limit there's only so much I'm, I'm able to or prepared to do um, because I'm, I'm volunteering my time for this you know um, and I think sometimes those mentoring relationships don't go as deeply as as, as they should because that mentor is you know throttling holding back from from what they can give um, like all um, programs that that specific program taught me a lot about um, the fact that I'm not always right um, and and that no matter how convinced I am um, that that my advice is is the best part best path to take that that sometimes founders are going to are going to prove me wrong sometimes um, their way of doing it um, can be the right way um, it's it's not easy to um, a b test it's not easy to to create two exact texts and have one exact tech make the decision this way and the other tech make the decision that way but but when a founder can come back to me and, and say you know what you know i did it my way and it still worked um i think a lot of the time they're expecting me to to be angry or defensive um but actually i'm i'm, I'm joyous when that happens like you know that that reminds me how much i have still to learn um and and how you know fantastic um entrepreneurs can be um in in their different ways of, of solving problems of finding solutions you know valuable solutions for customers um so there were a, a few instances like that in, in that particular collider program um with with you and with Zaptech, um with with scott um yeah, with, with a few others, and maybe I should keep their, you know, their identity confidential. But it was it was a really good program in that respect. Listen, the best piece of advice by far you gave me after you told me just to relax when I was crying and bawling my ears out and my eyes out, and I came home and I told my husband, "Oh, I embarrassed myself." He said, "Don't worry, I'm sure Alan's used to this." And you actually assured me a couple of the other founders also had a bit of a cry session, as though this is the worst thing you can do in your life. Um, but your, your advice that, and I remember this clearly, you said to me, you need an e-commerce platform, Nikki. And I immediately set about getting it up. And that was the best 
best advice um, I ever had. So to any startups out there, if you've got products that you're selling, make sure you've got an e-commerce platform because nothing gives you such a zing as you wake up in the morning and something has been sold and the process mm. is seamless and automatic and you just need to get your, your um, product in the post. Yeah, maybe let's just unpack that a little bit more um, so that everybody is, you know, understands what happened. You know, so you had a business where you were where you were selling your your, your products, um, but it was a very um, a human focused sales process. You know, nothing happened unless you were a member of your team moved it along, and and particularly for you, it meant you needed to sustain all of these potential sales negotiations in, um, at the same time. Um, and, and that just doesn't scale. You know, a person has to sleep, a person has to eat, a person has to have a life. And so that meant that your business was always going to be limited by the, the amount of time you had available to speak to potential customers. It also, I think, meant that um, it allowed you to, to create a bespoke solution for every single customer that, that you spoke to, um, which is a great way to learn more about what customers need but it's a lousy way, way to it, it, it stops you from from scaling the business right because you can't scale beyond a certain point unless you have you know well these are our solutions you can choose any one of these different solutions and maybe there's you know five or ten percent of that solution we customize for you but we can't just wipe the slate clean and come up with exactly what you want because then we have to find another two thousand customers to sell that to before we make that time back that we've lost and coming up with that bespoke solution for you and as you as you say once you have that set of, of products or services that people can just buy on their own when you wake up in the morning and the emails in your inbox somebody's just gone and bought something from you um it not only not only means that it you know didn't take any of your time but it also means it's huge validation for us i think you know when we see we created something and somebody just bought it you know, without us having to persuade them you know that feels really good doesn't it yeah, it does. I have to say, um, the first time I got, I was quite confused about this email because I've never received one before. And I was sort of unpacking this until it suddenly hit me and I had this beaming smile as I'd won the lotto. But for me, like that, that was absolutely priceless. I, I really, very, very good. So you're the mentor and founder investor at Startmate. Tell us about this. Yeah, um, Startmate goes back to, um, to a decade ago um, when um, Australia had never heard of an accelerator program for, for the most part. And, and there were so few um, tech startup founders in Australia that, that um, uh, pretty much, you know, most of, of, of the people in Sydney who worked in, in a tech startup could, could meet together on, on a regular basis for beer in the same pub, excuse me, and still have space left over in the pub for, for other, other visitors. Um, and, and we would, get together and we complain about a lot of things um so there was no um source of of early stage investment in australia for startups in those days there there really wasn't um we didn't have very many people who'd been successful in technology themselves and had decided to come back and be an angel investor and while there were busy fund managers in australia they were mostly interested in much much later stage technology companies and their focus was therefore mostly offshore um, even though they might have been based in Australia, most of their investment portfolio would have been offshore. Um, and so Australian textile founders at that stage had no choice but to bootstrap, you know, to, to build their business out of their own savings and their own cash flow, which is a great way forward if you've got the savings and the cash flow to make it happen. Um, but but if, it, if it fails or if you're not fortunate enough to find yourself in that situation, then it's, then it's not really an option. So we all knew that there were lots of people who would be, who had fantastic ideas, who might be able to build an amazing business, but, but were, who were held back through lack of early stage investment. Um, another thing I think is, is that we were all having lots of coffee. You know, those who have been working in, in tech for a while would, would have, you know, a number of coffees each week with people and try and give them some advice and help them forward. But there was nothing structured about that. There was, there was no, well, first you do this bit and then you do this next bit and then you do this other bit. There was no curriculum. And, uh, and we all felt that something curriculum-based would be, would be more helpful. And so then in, in, in um, Silicon Valley, um, Y Combinator and Techstars, two early US um, accelerator programs got started. And, and we would talk about how Australia needed something like a, a, a Y Combinator, particularly that, that seemed to be the, the model that would work best for Australia. And, and a few Australian companies were, were getting accepted into Y Combinator and making the huge leap over 
to, to Silicon Valley to, to go through that program. And of course, that meant that if they were successful, they weren't going to come back to Australia. They were going to stay in, in Silicon Valley where, where the industry was, was bigger and more mature and could support them better and where most of their customers are. And, uh, and so, you know, we we're very conscious that there was this, you know, growing brain drain of, of the best talent leaving Australia and going to the US. Um, so we, we thought if somebody had the courage to set something like a Y Combinator up for Australia, um, that maybe we could address the brain drain problem, the, the lack of structured coaching for founders, and also perhaps we could attract, do a better job of attracting early stage investment for those companies. Um, everybody knew that that work would be hard and, and that it would be uncompensated for a period of time. And so everybody was kind of, I think, reluctant to take that on. And then one day, Nikki Suvak, um, who is now... Um, you know, one of the founding partners of Blackbird Ventures, one day Nicky said, you know what, I'm, I'm tired of as a winching battle, I'm going to do something about it. And, uh, and he's certainly a man who, who does something about things. So um, I, I saw, I was at that time thinking about, you know, how do I learn how to be an angel investor? And, and I thought, well, if, if I was, you know, mentoring in this Startmate program, that would give me potentially um, a great opportunity to learn from a few of the other people who are more experienced as angel investors. I can coach the teams and, and perhaps through, through mentoring the teams, I might, um, you know, I, I might be able to make a, an informed investment decision rather than just seeing somebody pitch. I might actually get to know them over a period of months. So um, I, I took a deep breath and, and I made the commitment to actually invest in at least one company from each cohort from, from Startmate. Um, and that really brought my focus to play, you know, because I didn't have that much capital to start off. And I wasn't a, a particularly high net worth individual. I was gambling with money that I probably should have put in my superannuation or, or probably bought more Sydney real estate with, you know, um, <laughs> but it was the latter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely the latter, but, but it, it was my passion and, and, and I really wanted to, to try and be good at it. Um, and, and so, you know, I talked before about the importance of a commercial engagement and making everything work better from, from coaching and, and a founder perspective. The same is true, I think, you know, as an investor, there are people out there who will tell you they're an angel investor, but when you, when you actually, if you're able to find out how many investments that I actually made, um, they perhaps haven't made very many, or maybe they did it once or twice in the past 10 years. That doesn't really mean that they're a good angel investor or, or that really they're very likely to angel invest again. Um, and, and so I thought, you know, if I'm going to risk everything, I need to try and um, be the best that I can do. So, you know, if, if there's nobody in a start my cohort that, that um, I think is, is worthy of my investment, and then that probably reflects poorly on, on, on me as a mentor, or if I haven't helped get one of those companies there. So the first Startmate company that I invested in was in the first cohort of Startmate, and that was called Bugherd. And, and I'm very pleased to say that the Bugherd is is still um, a growing, successful, profity tech, pro- profitable technology company. Um, so yeah, I didn't I didn't kill Bugherd. <laughs> I'm delighted <laughs> to hear that. You know, Alan, you've touched on something because I mean, one of the the great losses during the COVID time has been the the Collider program up at QUT. Um, there may have been other factors, but I, I certainly don't think COVID helped. Um, like, what what programs are there available now today um, that that startup that founders can go to and go listen? Um, well, obviously they have to pitch to get into them, but but what's available on the market today? Well, you know me, I, I don't like to be critical of our federal government. Oh, please, feel <laughs> um, free. Go but, for it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there were two really important um, programs for, for our tech industry in Australia. Um, uh, the Incubator Support Grant Scheme and also the, the Entrepreneur in Residence um, Grant. And uh, both of those um, uh, uh, funding schemes um, were a big part of, of the growth uh, in Australia's accelerator and incubator programs, because it, it gave um, the people who were bold enough to set up a new accelerator program or an incubator, um, it, a, 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 you know, it was matching funding. So you had to go out and find your own funding as well. But it just it, it, it lowered the bar. It helped more um, organisations get involved and start offering um, an accelerator program or an incubator to their community. It made a huge difference, particularly in rural and regional Australia. Um, those people who are unfortunate enough to live in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane. Um, but, but universities, for instance, um, professional organisations were able to offer these sorts of programs, this sort of coaching and support. Um, one of the changes in, in, in this most recent federal budget, uh, the, the June budget, 
as the federal government quietly, um, you know, there was no press release, there was no press conference, but they quietly axed both of those two programs. And, and so, you know, those people who were running an incubator or an accelerator program um, suddenly found their 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 available budget halved, um, and and had a much much bigger impact on those newer programs. You know, some more established programs like Startmate um, uh, were were established enough to no longer qualify for those grants, um, and so it wasn't supporting successful programs. It was really for those people getting started with a new program. Um, and unfortunately, all, all of that funding is gone. Um, so we have fewer programs in Australia now, and, and uh, we'll probably lose a few more over, over the next uh, couple of years. And that's that's a great shame if, if if we are to to you know truly become an innovation nation, if if we really are going to take advantage of of the leveraging effect um, of, of of the great multiplying power of, of technology um, and, and create a new economy for Australia, we we need those people with those ideas um, to take a look at the economy around them and go, you know, I don't just have an idea. I actually have something that, that I could act on, you know, that there will be people out there who will help me. There are people with advice and experience who can, you know, help me reduce the risk that I might fail with this. Um, if, if those people don't see those pathways, if they don't see those programs, if they aren't exposed to the learning, you know, and those hard won experiences, then, you know, they may never even give it a try, which will mean that, that we will be stuck with, with the same economy that we've ever had, you know, held hostage by commodity prices and, and their eternal variations. When the iron ore price or the coal price or the wheat price or the wool price the beef price goes up Australian economy does well but then it plunges again it inevitably comes back down and, and suddenly we find we've overinvested in these things and you know everybody's scrambling to stop themselves from going bankrupt and so we create an economy which is as afraid of 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 uh, of, of risk as it is um, interested in opportunity where we need to to change is, is we need to create an economy where there is more upside in taking advantage of opportunity than there is risk um, that we need to, to mitigate against. Um, and, and the way that we can do that is we can take the huge wealth that we've built in those old industries, those commodity industries, and we can start to find ways to apply to fostering the growth of new industries. Now, these new industries are growing anyway. Um, they always have and they always will, but there's an organic rate of growth. Um, and, and it's slow when we benchmark Australia against other first world nations, we are pretty much the slowest growing. You know, there are some second world nations growing their innovation industries faster than, than ours. And so, you know, once again, we're getting ourselves into a position where, where we will be uncompetitive, where we will have a small number of solutions. We'll have a small number of people in our economy employed in these industries. We won't be learning as fast. Um, and those people who are successful will be fewer and far between, and they'll be less able to redeploy the capital that they, that they win and successful ventures will be less able to, to deploy that into, into, into new businesses. So, um, I worry about that a lot. But to answer your question, <laughs> at this point in time, <laughs> most universities, unfortunately, QRT um, accepted, um, most Australian universities do have some kind of incubator or accelerator program that, that budding entrepreneurs um, can look to for advice and support. Um, so that would be your first port of call. You don't need to currently be enrolled um, as, as a student um, to, to qualify for most of these programs. You can just be an alumni. Um, you, you can be attached to a research organization that is, that is affiliated with the university. Um, there's really quite a broad network uh, of, of people who qualify for a university-based program. Um, uh, Last year, I was working with with uh, the Monash University Generator program. I'm hoping to do some some more work with with Generator again this year. Um, I've also done work with uh, UTS in Sydney. There were some programs um, led by by Murray Herps. Um, Sydney University has programs. UNSW, University of Western Sydney, University of Wollongong, and that's just in, in my home state of New South Wales. So um, I think that would be the the first port of call. Then the second port of call is that there are still many um, professional industry organizations that have some kind of, of education program for, for new entrepreneurs. So, so professional skills-based training where you're improving your craft in, in your, in your um, profession um, are good as well. But really entrepreneurship is about stepping outside of your profession, taking those skills and that experience and, and creating a new kind of business rather than just improving your own career. So, so, so look for that from, from a professional association level as well. You may be able to find some, some programs that can help you there. 
You know, I remember vividly the day we were walking back from a coffee that uh, we both had because we were talking about uh, Exatic and we were on our way back and you said to me, you you have found what you were born to do and, and this is this coaching and mentoring startups. Now, you have a coaching business yourself. Can you tell us a little bit, say I'm uh, an entrepreneur, I've got an idea and I'm coming to you. How, how would you take me through this program? What What would you do with me? Um, yeah, I'll just touch on, on, um, you know, finding my purpose. Yeah. That, uh, my grandmother and my mother are both, um, you know, wise, wise women and, and, and grandmother rest her soul said to me, you know, whenever I would ask her whether I should do something or try something, um, that I hadn't done before, she would say in, in a beautiful Scottish accent that I won't attempt to recreate, but she would say, well, you're a long time dead son. And, and what she meant was, you know, if you don't try it, um, you know, you, you may regret it for all of eternity. Um, and, and so the, the potential upside of, of trying something new is, is, is much greater than the downside of trying it and failing. Um, and I learned that lesson from my mother as well, who, who said to me, um, uh, you know what, you're going to um, uh, regret the things that you don't try much, much more than, than the things that you do. And she said, you know, my, my advice to you would be to go and try and find a way to do the things that you would do for free um, and get paid to do them. And so that was actually, you know, what led me into journalism in the first place. Like I, I was that kid at school who was pretty good at English, who didn't have much trouble um, completing their essays and, and creative writing assignments were my favorite kind of homework. Um, and so going into journalism was for me a way to try and find a way to get paid to do something that I would do for free. So most of my career, it hasn't been a career path. It's just been, oh, here's an opportunity to do something that I would do for free and get paid doing it. Um, so um, that has, has led me in, in, into, into what I now do today. So um, I spent some of my time as an angel investor, again, working off a relatively small capital base. So it's a, a fairly small portfolio and I don't get to make very many investments in the course of a year. Um, but I still get such great joy um, out, of, out of helping people, um, you know, drawing on my own experience and advice and connections. Um, and, and so... Uh, Really, as a result of, of, of COVID and, and seeing a bit of a downturn in the work that I do um, with accelerator programs, um, I've, I've started doing one-on-one private coping. I'm still really figuring out, you know, the, the best ways for that to work. Um, it's, it's, it's a big risk for somebody who's just getting started as an entrepreneur to uh, pay somebody else for advice when there are so many other people who are prepared to have a coffee with you and, and give you, you know, their advice for the price of a coffee. Um, but, but, you know, I like to think that, you know, again, you know, getting paid a, a proper amount of money to try and help somebody focuses uh, my efforts on, on trying to do, you know, my best possible work for them. You know, not just, oh, you know, you bought me a coffee, I'll, I'll give you a bit of advice and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. You know, if, if somebody's paying me to be their coach, then, then you know, our interests are aligned. I have to try and make you succeed. I'm not going to be able to build a successful coaching business if, if, I'm, if I'm churning and burning people. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm still figuring out, but basically um, I have, I have a, a, a pretty crappy Squarespace website right now, which still has way too much Laura Mipsum um copy on it um that was actually built for me by by one of the teams um, that i coached in the muradi program um and i won't name them because the website's a very poor reflection of their excellent um design and coding skills i just need to get around to finishing um all the stuff that i meant to do on the website and then i'm using a a product called profi p-r-o-f-i um and and profi is a is a is a specific coaching platform that helps you manage a uh, calendar availability and, and bookings and, and, and billing and that kind of thing. So I'm basically just doing, you know, an initial 30 minute um, free introductory call uh, for people who I think um, might be interesting to coach. Um, and, and then following on from that at the moment, you can book a one hour workshop with me or, or a single 30 minute um, uh, check-in with me or, 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 or um, a bundle of, of four 30 minute check-ins that you can choose to use over the course of a month or two to see if we, if we make progress together. And I'm still figuring it out. I've made loads of mistakes. I think I've been pretty transparent with those people when I have had mistakes and, and try to document you know, what I did wrong or what I can do better. Um, I'm still figuring this out, but um but, you know, I, I, I like to think, you know, it's probably better to, to set out on this entrepreneur journey um, without being alone, without having somebody there 
Um, and at least somebody who has the confidence to tell you, you know what, I don't really know the answer to this question. Let's both go and look this up together. Let's both go and, and, and search and see if we can find an answer. I think that's better than trying to do it yourself. Well, listen, from someone who's done this journey um, mostly on their own, um, to any startup uh, founders out there, uh, if I can highly recommend Alan. If you don't use Alan, certainly use someone else, but don't try and do it yourself. Because, uh, listen, you know, I remember conversations sitting in the, um, you know, our joint space up in, in Brisbane and you're talking to other founders and I was eavesdropping on what you were saying about things that they should try and use. And then I'd go and look at it and go, gee, this is not something I'd even considered. A, I didn't even know about it. And B, I did, you can't consider something you don't know about. So, um, you know, and I think, you know, a lot of the pitfalls that you go, listen, tried and tested ways here. Don't do this. This is you know, don't even, don't waste money here. So um, wholeheartedly, I I, um, I think it's a brilliant idea. If, if you're starting out, pay someone. I was on a, a panel one day and we were talking about uh, mentors and um, advisors. And you have to remember, not all mentors have your best interest at heart. Sadly to say, there are some out there that you think, you know, you're getting great advice from and you're not getting great advice from them. So pick them extremely carefully. And I think, um, you know, when you invest in yourself and you invest in someone else, you're going to get, you're going to get the hard truth pretty quickly because it's going to reflect on both of you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think um, the, the bad mentors last for very long. Um, fortunately, you know, so I, I think natural selection weeds them out after a while and they go and find something else to do. I think it's pretty difficult to sustain a, a mentoring role um, if, if you're not good at it or if you don't have the founder's best interests in, in mind. Um, I, I do think um, it, it can be worth paying for and, and everybody's, um, everybody's circumstances are different. Um, and so, um, you know, how much mentoring should cost is, a, is, a, is an open question. Um, I can tell you, you know, as, as you know, trying to decide how much to charge people for a product or a service is really hard, right? Um, and, and so how I've arrived at that is, is I've said, well, you know, this is how many hours I can give to this in the course of a, of a week. Um, and this is what my monthly outgoings are. You know, so so if I'm to make a, a profession out of this, it's pretty simple. This is what I need to charge an hour. So I either need to find people who can afford to pay that, or uh, accept that this this you know business model isn't going to work. And that's basically you know the advice that I would give to a founder if I were coaching them in that same situation. If you're building a service business, figure out what what your outgoings are, um, and uh, and you can't sustain this for very long if if you're not making enough money to live. So um, you know, let's do some simple maths together. And, and, and we'll figure out pretty quickly, you know, how much you need to charge to make this business work. Alan, you know, you've touched on the giving part of your nature, and I think that's pretty much, if I think of you, I can sum up one, and you're an extremely generous person with your time. You do a lot oh, of pro, pro bono work as well. Um, you're involved, you're the chair of Catalyst. Tell us about this program. Yeah, the Catalyzer program is a, is, is a really beautiful thing. Um, I was... Uh, Frust- I've always been frustrated by Australia's um, uh, approach to to uh, refugees, asylum seekers, um, and even you know migration in general. Um, Australian politicians of, of all persuasions, governments of all persuasions over many many decades um, have have manipulated Australians' um, uh, attitudes towards people who are different for their own political purposes for a long long time. And, uh, and, and, you know, I, I was born in Melbourne, but, but my family um, took me um, around the world. Um, I lived in, in 28 houses and one boat before I, I left home at 17. And, uh, and I've never felt like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm particularly Australian. I, I'm a citizen of the world as a, as a result. And so um, it drives me crazy when people assume that you know because i'm anglo because i have an australian accent um that i'm the same as them and and that it's it's them and me against all the other people who are out there who would who would like to be australian too um because we are all migrants you know some of us are only one generation some of us two generations but then suddenly we're in and everybody else is not allowed in because we've got it and our border is closed and i just i hate that opportunity you know migration migration has has created so much 
much value has created such um, a relatively stable, relatively um, open and, and relatively successful society here that I can't believe so many Australians would, would have us um, work against those goals. So, um, you know, frustrated um, by that for a long, long time, um, a couple of, of, of young entrepreneurs came to shadow me um, in, in my work at Startmate and said that they were working on an idea for an accelerator program that, that, that would target uh, marginalized migrants, um, you know, people from, you know, women, people from, uh, you know, of, of uh, Muslim faith, um, people from, from um, the African subcontinent, um, basically anywhere where English wasn't your first language and, and, uh, and you weren't male and you weren't Anglo. And we're going to try and help them explore their own entrepreneurial ideas. Um, and it wasn't about creating tech startups necessarily. In, in the early days, it was, let's just you know, help these people create viable small businesses. And if we can do that, then we can, we can maybe show other Australians that, you know, this person isn't, isn't, um, isn't to be feared, you know, just because they arrived here from Afghanistan with, with, with their children. You know, this is somebody who's going to create a business in Australia that might employ your teenage kids and maybe four or five other families' teenage kids and create jobs and opportunity and wealth for Australia. These are people who are going to volunteer to coach your kid's soccer team. You know, they're going to join the local rotary. Um, they're going to vote in council elections, you know, like let's celebrate these people and so that was basically the the fundamental of, of the catalyzer program let's show australia that that these people deserve a chance and let's reduce the risk that when those people are bold enough to try something entrepreneurial let's reduce the risk that they will fail and increase the odds that they might succeed so catalyzer has has grown since then um and i'm hugely grateful to be catalyzer's um chairperson now um uh, but, but catalyzer has a, a for-profit and uh, and a not-for-profit arm and uh, in our, our for-profit um, um we we consult to business and to government and we help um, local government state government national governments here and overseas with their own migrant entrepreneurial programs with the curriculum and and the coaching that they need and then our offer arm each year takes people through a boot camp process to to figure out to help people figure out whether or not their their idea might have legs and then an accelerator program for the best of those ideas to, to give those people a little bit of funding and, and a lot of coaching and a, and a lot of support um, and so that that program runs um, every year now in, in Sydney and Melbourne. And um, as of last year, we started doing that in, in Wellington, New Zealand as well. Um, so the whole thing, you know, the um, is, is just run on a shoestring with a bunch of very, very hardworking people um, who, you know, for the most part, if they draw um, a small salary um, from Catalyzer, it's it's much, much less than they'd be earning um, in, in, you know, in another profession. But um, but it means so much uh, to to see the, the outcomes, the results, the businesses that we've created and the, the economic independence that we've been able to give people who, who deserve a chance in this country. It's, um, it's, it's really good work to do. You know, um, Last Night on Four Corners was a program of um, people that were picked up um, on ships, um, Vietnamese, that, and they did it, I think the program was after 30 years, I can't, I got in, I started watching in the middle, but what these Vietnamese people had gone on to do, and they brought the sailors and the refugees together to say thank you and meet each other. Oh, I was crying mm. all the way because I just looked at it and I go, you know, I'm a I'm an immigrant to um, Australia myself, and uh, you know, I, I think mostly all immigrants we all work our butts off because you know we we're trying to assimilate into a culture that's not ours, and we're extremely grateful for the opportunity to be living in this absolutely fantastic country. Absolutely, absolutely. You know what? Um, you know, Catalyze is very um, fortunate to be able to, you know, two of Australia's most successful tech investors, Shelley Trung and, and, and Peter Hoon, are, are both um, first generation um, refugees to Australia. You know, they both came over on boats from, from Vietnam. Vietnam. Um, they have terrifying tales to tell of, of, of being threatened at sea by pirates and, and uh, nearly not making it to Australia. Um, they have relatives and friends that, that couldn't make it to Australia and, and terrible things have happened to them. Um, but Peter and Shelley both, you know, are so grateful for the opportunities that Australia has, has given them. And, and, you know, and now they are helping create a, another generation of, of successful migrant entrepreneurs. Um, so, you know, I, I have, you know, full faith in, in Australia's ability to, to realize um, over time, um, when they're not 
actively, deliberately manipulated by their government to, to fear people from, from other cultures that, um, you know, Australia will learn that, that our greatest strength is our, is our diversity. Oh, definitely. And, and everyone at the end of the day actually wants to contribute to, um, you know, every, it's a win-win situation. Hmm, absolutely. You're a judge on FIRST, which is a robotics competition. Tell us about this initiative. Oh, gosh. I, um, not being able to, to be involved with the FIRST robotics competition, um, you know, in person has, has been a really hard thing about, about the pandemic because it's such an inspiring thing. There are so many beautiful things about this program. Basically, um, uh, uh, Dean Kamen, the, the, the guy who, who invented the Segway and also the disposable um, um, uh, insulin syringe um, uh, came up um, with 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 first robotics um, with the help uh, of, of of a, of a wonderful um, uh, Californian academic and um, the the goal of the program is is to encourage young people in primary school secondary school and university to to develop their their STEM skills their science technology education and math skills and um, engineering and math skills and 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 to consider a career in those fields um and and to consider that perhaps stem um as a career isn't necessarily something that's 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 only um a good idea for those people who, who are great at, at maths and physics and chemistry that it's actually stem involves many people with with many natural talents and many natural skills so first robotics is a, is, a, is a global program um, and it has programs um, aimed at kids in, in primary school that lead all the way through high school and, and on into university um, the um, there is a competitive nature to these programs so so basically what you do is you, is you form a team or teams at your primary school at your high school um, at your university and and you compete against other similar teams of similar age groups um, and uh, you have local competitions and then there will be regional competitions, state competitions, national, and then there's the Asia Pacific championships, which um, for the past few years have been held in Australia every year. And then the, 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 the winners from the Asia Pacific championships get to go to the US for the, for the world championships. Um, and, and I'm not entirely across these, you know, how many first robotics teams there would be in Australia right now. But but my guess would be, you know, probably upwards of, of three or four hundred teams across the country in everything from from, you know, Sydney and Melbourne's, you know, brightest and, and, and most expensive private schools through to tiny little single teacher schools and, and rural and regional Australia. And the first robotics competition has ways of, of, of allowing those teams to learn from each other, to draw on each other's experience, um, to be mentored, to be coached, um, to, to build um, r robots um, together. So those, those robots go into a playing field. And, and there's a there's a competitive angle to this, but how the the program works is it actually pairs um, teams up. So it's three teams versus three teams, um, and those those three teams initially in the early days of the competition are, are, are randomly chosen. So teams from from all walks of life and all parts of the world get get together and have to learn to work together as a team to to achieve um and, and there's a there's a large um, crew of judges who are evaluating not just the the technical excellence of the robotics and the engineering um, but also the the social and community outreach the fundraising the media communications um the the, the leadership skills the communication skills um, and, and so, you know, my, my particular focus has been in the last few years in, 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 in working in, uh, in that area. So I get to evaluate the, the, the applications for the, for the Chairman's Award and, and the Dean's List Award, which are those awards which, which focus on, on how well did this team do at, at um, reaching out to their community and getting their community behind what they were trying to achieve and you know how much money did they raise how did they raise that and what evidence do we have that they're they're actually giving back to you know more junior teams less experienced teams are they coaching and helping other teams around the country around the world um and so you know i never come away from a first robotics regional championship without uh without the dabbing in my eyes it's a really really moving beautiful emotional experience that that creates so much opportunity for young people when they get up to the senior ranks, there are um, a massive number of, of um, scholarships available um, from some of the, the biggest 
technology and engineering firms in the world from major Ivy League universities. Um, so, you know, this is literally a path for, for somebody from a single teacher school in, 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 in regional Queensland to, um, to, you know, go and study at Stanford University one day um, if, if, if their parent or their school is, is um, motivated enough to get them started in first robotics. I highly recommend it to anybody who's out there. Ellen, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. Will you will you send me more stuff about it where I can find it? And I'll certainly, I think um, that's something very useful for our audience to be able to explore more. Um, I'd be very happy to do that. Yeah, I love it. I love that you say, um, I think um, all these, I know all the vultures, I call them vultures, coming to prey on our Australian talent and whisk them away. But I go, good for them. Spend some years there, learn your craft and come back and come and enrich our environment. Yeah, I think we have a, a huge quality of life um, uh, dividend here in Australia that, that we can count on, you know, for, for some time to come. Um, and so I do think, you know, I used to worry a lot about, about the, the brain drain, but I think we're, we're now starting to see in, in, in the technology industry, we're starting to see a lot of that talent come back. And, uh, and, and so that's, that's what we can look forward to in the future, I think, if we're very careful. Yeah, definitely. Alan, you're you're a family man. Tell us, t- give us advice. This this work life balance thing. How do you juggle it? What's your advice out there to, particularly founders? It's it's a bit of a hard thing to do. Um, it is. It is a really hard thing to do. And and, and uh, um, you know, I, I can be totally open here and say that you know I have I have broken myself. As as a startup founder, as an entrepreneur, um, and uh, and you know. The injuries have healed, the scars have healed, um, but you know, emotionally and, and, and physically, you know, um, I spent a, a few weeks in hospital with a with a bad heart at, at one stage, um, and uh, and and the entrepreneur life um, is hard um, if you're not able to achieve a balance. And, and I've most of the time learnt to uh, set up and, and, and maintain, um, a bit more of a healthy balance after, you know, 20, 25 years of, of this. I think it's important to look at the, at the root cause of, of why it's so hard. I think the, the, the first root cause is that it's, it's not a cookie cutter career path being a, an entrepreneur. Um, you know, my particular speciality is, is tech startup entrepreneurs, but all forms of entrepreneurship are, are generally trying to create something which is completely new. And you're going to make mistakes. You're going to have setbacks along the way. When my my father, I was at a family barbecue when I was about eight or 10 years old. Excuse me. And I was at that age where I was becoming curious about what my um, relatives did. And in those days, you know, this was the 70s. Um, it was the men who had the careers and, and, and the women who were mothers for the most part. So I was just asking my dad, you know, what, what each of my different uncles and my large family did, you know. And, and when I got to my uncle George, I said, you know, what does Michael George do, dad? And, and my dad said, oh, he's an entrepreneur, son. And I said, mm, that's, a, that entre- that's a big word, dad. What does that mean? And he said, oh, it means he hasn't got a proper job. Um, oh dear and uh, you know ironically um, my dad was actually an entrepreneur too but he didn't really he didn't really understand that at that time and he understands it now but at at the time and and, you know I think that's a very real criticism you know Australia has this tall poppy syndrome and uh and we we like to feel like everybody has a role and a place to play Um, and that means those people who who are uncomfortable or unhappy or are misfits in their roles um aren't exactly encouraged to go about finding their own you know for, for most of us if, if we get an encouragement it, it it's often just um just words it's not necessarily backed up with with heart with with genuine meaning um the moment you know we we we, we fail you know that there will be there'll be critics you know people who perhaps will be good enough to pick us up and dust us off but the, but then will assure us you know it's probably time for you to get back to a proper job isn't it you know um and so i i think that's a big part of of, of why choosing to be an entrepreneur is very difficult I think another big part on the positive side is that if you're creating a new kind of business from from scratch, every single hour you're able to put into your business can often, you know, pay dividends, you know, three, four, five, ten times, you know, the 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 payback. You know, one additional hour working on your your sales pipeline or working on your marketing strategy might deliver you 
10 hours of, of, of you know, paid work in, in return down the track. And that, and that that might, you know, happen again and again and again once you get those numbers right. So the temptation is, is not to go to bed just yet. You know, the temptation is just to reply to one more email before you do something with, with your kid or, or with your partner. Um, and it becomes addictive because it, it works often enough. You know, that, that email, you know, you, you'll check into your email the following morning and see that email you sent at 11.30 last night. You know, you've got a response and that person, you know, is interested and wants to talk to you. You know, that's a very addictive pattern of behavior to get into. And it's a very difficult one to break. The more successful you become as an entrepreneur, the, the more addicted you are to that feeling of, oh my gosh, I put in an hour and I get 10 hours of value back out. You know, where can I find another hour? Mm-hmm. And the problem is that we're sacrificing. We're, we're sacrificing all the rest of our life in order to do that. We can't create more time. Time's the only commodity that we can't create more of, you know? And so I, I try to work on kind of a pie chart view of my life where there may be times where, um, to achieve a particular goal and a particular time frame, I need to increase the amount of the pie chart of life that I dedicate to my entrepreneurial pursuit right now. But by looking at it as, as a pie chart and knowing that I can never make the, the pie bigger, I can only take away from something, helps me appreciate that I'm sacrificing something, something that's important to a healthy and, and whole life when I do that for a little period of time. And that means when the time for that is over, I need to give those other things more time. You know, it's not just to come back to, you know, my, my entrepreneurial um, uh, uh, time as, you know, eight hours of my life again. I've actually got to reduce that to, to five or six hours for a period of time to allow the rest of my life to catch up, to allow my, my relationship with my partner, my relationship with my son, um, my, my still time, my alone time, my reading time, my exercise time my time enjoying a proper home cooked meal, you know, all of those things are so important to a balanced life. You know, there is no life hack that means you can get by with all of that without all of that. You know, you've got to bring that life back into balance from a time. So I work with some of my founders on that, on that pie chart view of, of life and, and, and encourage them to report into me so that they've got some external source of, of, of uh, verification that they are, um, taking those steps until they they develop those habits themselves. Um, so for myself, you know, I do some pretty simple things. Um, I make myself externally accountable to my to my fitness coach. So my fitness coach, um, I have I have a couple at the moment actually. Um, I have I have Maddie and Anita and 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 Hells, um, and they're all out there. Um, and and I meet them early in the morning um, at, at the beach because sunrise at a beach is a beautiful thing to experience. Um, and, and if you start at 6am, you can be done by 7am and they've got the whole rest of your, your day to work. And then all you have to do is make sure that you get to bed early. Um, but knowing that my trainer turns up there at this time of year in complete darkness and is waiting for me to get there means that when my alarm goes off, well, I better get up, you know, cause I'm letting them down if I don't go. And I know that I'm weak if it was just me, there's no way I'd get up at 5.30 and get to the beach at 6. You know, so being externally accountable to somebody else is a really good tool. recommend that you use that. Um, if you get up early to exercise or to meditate, do yoga, read, do anything but do work, if you get up early, it really helps you go to bed early too. Um, it seems pretty obvious, but it's amazing um, how many people find that hard. If you get to bed early, you're much more likely to get a, a full night's sleep. You're much less likely to suffer from things like insomnia if you just start going to sleep earlier at night. Um, and then, you know, I don't take uh, my phone ever into my bedroom unless, you know, I'm sick and I have to work from bed with the man flu. Um, so I don't take devices into my bedroom. My bedroom is a place where I read you know, and, and change clothes um, and sleep. That's, that's what that room is for. I, I don't break down that boundary. Um, in my new living situation, unfortunately, I, I have to use a, a corner of the living area um, for, for, for my work. Um, but in, in my previous home, um, I had a dedicated room for that. I was fortunate enough to be able to say, when I step into this room, I'm working. Yeah. When I step out of that room. So those boundaries, I think those physical boundaries can be a, a really useful thing. Um, I have a friend, uh, uh, Megan Flammer, who, who lights a particular candle with a scent um, when her workday begins and then lights another particular candle with a different scent when her workday ends just to give her that, that cue that, okay, it's, it's helping her partition her life. It's helping her be clear where 
those segments of the pie chart are. I think that really helps as well. Um, and then, you know, the entrepreneur journey is, is, is difficult. And sometimes we can't always share all of our fears and, and, and doubts and concerns with those closest to us. If you're fortunate enough to be able to, to share all of that with your life partner um, or, or with adult children, then, um, you know, that should be your first port of call. And if you can't do that, then, then find a mentor, find a colleague, find a neighbor, you know, find, find somebody who you can confide in. You know, it's a huge burden to carry all on your own shoulders. And, uh, and from time to time, it will break you. If you find a relationship where you can be open and honest and share some of that, maybe sometimes have a little bit of a cry. Or, or a, a rant or a rave, then um, it's going to make that burden so much easier to carry. You'll sleep better, you'll eat better, you'll have a happier life. You know, I can so resonate with that last uh, statement that you've made. I, I was in a, um, a building with, I've moved offices now, but at the EIBC, it was predominantly startups. And I, you know, I'd look at all these founders on their journeys and they're all hustling and, you know, it's pretty lonely, you know, you, you do, you're a little bit hesitant sharing, um, you know, your pain points, whether it's your cash flow, or whether you're going, oh my God, you know, have I done the right thing here? Or oh, whatever the problem is that you're dealing with. It's, it is, it's a lonely journey. Mm-hmm. It can be, but it can be a beautiful journey if, if you're able to share, right? Because then when the yeah. good news comes, you share it with a person who knows how hard it's been for you too. And, uh, and that really has, you know, 10 times the reward. Yeah. Alan, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Have you got any closing thoughts you'd like to leave the audience with today? Just um, be kind to yourself, you know, accept that you're not always going to get it right, that there will be setbacks along the way. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be doing this. Um, You have as as much right as everybody else to determine your own journey in the world and to find success and to find peace and to find love and to find happiness through all of your work and in your life and, and your work as well. I love that. Um, okay, have I put your email address there if anyone would like to uh, uh, reach you for coaching in particular? Thank you. Yes, that, that'd be great. Okay, you'll you'll let me know which is the best one because I've got a few of your email addresses, but <laughs> we'll, you'll send me the one that I'll put on the, the show notes. So, Thanks. Alan, thank you so much. As I said, it's uh, it's been a long overdue chat and I do think there's another chat in here because we didn't even touch on the tech council that's just been formed in Australia. That's for our next podcast and I'm sure you're going to be way more involved in your coaching business when we touch base again. Uh, I look forward our, to it. Thank you. Yeah, to our listeners, please contact Alan. He's one of the most generous people that you're ever going to um, hope to meet. Um, make use of his half an hour and then pay him for his advice. You will not regret it. And uh, join me again next week for Let's Talk Robotics. <laughs>